but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he or she does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Now, that's a key thing for us to remember right there. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in what? Evil. But in your thinking, be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders and unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy... And, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is God's word. You may be seated and let's go into prayer this morning. Father, as we come before you, I pray that your word would be opened up for each and every one of us. Help us to understand what Paul has put before us in this letter to the church at Corinth, how it is the gifts are truly supposed to operate. Help us not to just look at this passage of Scripture in a very, for lack of a better way to put it, in a very stiff and and rote, wooden way that says this is the way it is versus that's the way it is. Help us to understand that every gift that you have given to the church doesn't cease until Jesus comes back. But every gift is for the benefit and the upbuilding of the church and for the reaching of the unbeliever and for encountering people in the places that they are. It's for the betterment of the other, not necessarily for us. Help us to understand whatever our giftings are, Lord. They are given to us to be used for your glory, for your kingdom in a way that shows the light of Jesus to those who don't have any idea who he is. Father, bend our heart and our mind toward that direction. Help us to see and hear what you have to say. And as we come before you, I want to lift up all of the people that are on this prayer list here, Ben and Teresa, Mary and Francis and Martha and Kat and all of the Christians, not just in Russia, Lord, but around the world, but this morning most especially in Russia. I want to lift all of these folks up to you. You know each and every one of their needs you, you know what they're struggling with. You, you know the problems that they have, the sicknesses and the, the ailments that they're struggling with, or even just the problems that they're dealing with from day to day. I want to lift each and every one of them up to you, Lord, and I pray that your hand would be upon them, that in whatever their needs may be this morning and throughout this week, that we would remember them in our prayers before your throne because you bow down to hear the prayers of your people and you answer them every single time. Help us to see your answer to these prayers. Help us to see the fact that you are moving in and amongst your people and in and amongst this world, even though sometimes it doesn't look that way. Father, and most especially for Christians in Russia, we pray, Lord, that you would just, in this time once again of persecution where they actually don't even have the right at this point, 
to speak the way in which they want. I pray that you would watch out for them, that they would stand strong in the faith. Lord, that they would be able to endure whatever it is is coming with the legislation that is over there. I pray for there and I pray for all these other countries where Christians meet in secret. Where even owning a Bible is a dangerous thing. Remind us, Lord, of the wonderful freedoms we have. Remind us also of all of those who serve in the military. I'm thinking of Brady and of John and of Chris and Zach and all of these other folks, Jeff and Nathan and Jeremy, Ben, Grace. We could go down the list and we could continue to go. I lift every one of them up to you and those that we don't know. We're not for people all the way back from the Lexington Green on willing to stand in a gap. We wouldn't be here with the freedoms that we have today. But let us not take them lightly, Lord. And I pray as a pastor and as a Christian in this country that we would not defend the biblical truths the way the world defends for their right to do what they want, but that we would be your people for your world in a way that brings glory to Jesus because that is our mandate and our call. Paul tells us that the weapons that we fight with are not carnal weapons. That's not what we do battle with. We do things differently, Lord. Help us to get our hands around that as we take a look at your word this morning and we celebrate this weekend. We give you thanks and we give you praise for all the blessings that we have, for all the families that we're going to gather with together. Bless those times and the fellowship that we'll have in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I promise I will get you out of here sometime before this evening. What I want us really to look at, we have two more weeks in the gifts, and then we're going to be going into the summer in the Psalms, um, and I think that that's going to be a great thing. We're going to be taking a look at God's covenantal promises in relation to his creation and what it looks like, how God's covenantal promises are working out in a world that doesn't really look like God's active in this world. So we're going to spend the summer just really understanding what the Bible tells us about how it is we live understanding God's covenantal promises and how it is we're supposed to bring those to bear against a world that seriously doesn't look like God's involved at all. Um, but we got this week and we have next week in looking at the passage in 1 Corinthians 14. Today I want to look at the primary purpose of the gifts and what that is, and specifically that it's to bring the body of believers to maturity and the unbeliever to repentance. That's ultimately what we're going to be looking at because for some weeks now we've been exploring the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And some perhaps here who've been enduring this for these last weeks are wondering if we're ever going to bring this whole thing to a close. While others of you are looking around wondering why it is we don't have an altar call every week to see if we can be infilled with the power of the presence of the Spirit. Because after all, when we talk about the gifts, these are the way in which we operate and how we do things. I just haven't felt called and led to do that. And the Holy Spirit being the one that directs those things is the one who we have to be obedient to. You see, because the day of Pentecost, what did we learn? We learned that God was launching Act 5, new creation. In and through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, God set the world to rights, as it were, and the enemy himself, Satan, is defeated. Not was, not will be, but is defeated, present tense. And we discovered the healing of the curse from Genesis 11, where all the nations were divided. We see that healing and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that day. And this entire event was not some disjointed event that just happened because Joel the prophet talked about it as some new thing God was doing. That wasn't at all what was going on. 
The events that we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 not only are historical, but they are under the direct care and the privy of God's divine providence. His hand was upon everything that was going on. It was the plan all along. It wasn't act B or plan B. The wonderful grace of God is seen as the world plows ahead in chaos. And yet, God continues to reach out with the plea, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, that picture's been seen very clearly as we've explored the wonderful yet dysfunctional church in this city of Corinth in Greece some 2,000 years ago. It's a place where no less than 26 different places of worship, we learned, gave you the opportunity to pick and choose whatever it is you desired, and you could go find the God that supposedly would provide that for you. A pagan culture where people were coming to faith in Christ, and yet they were having a hard time sorting through what exactly they were to leave behind and how it was they were supposed to live within that culture. And if you think about it, that's not entirely different from where we are today, now is it? Sounds very familiar. In fact, I'm convinced that we today in 2016 are much closer in practice and in life to the ancient pagan world that Paul was speaking to than we would ever care to admit as people. But once again, God's grace through it all is always abundant, isn't it? See, we learn that he's always going to meet us where we're at, which I think is very important for us to understand. God will always meet us where we are at, and then he will move us forward from there. A lesson we need to take to heart is his people, because being a church which professes Jesus should be that way and no other way. Focusing on reaching the lost in the same way that we were reached never casting off the truths of Scripture to make folks comfortable and neither being such jerks about the whole idea that we demand a fish be cleaned before we pull that fish into the boat. It just doesn't work that way. It's never worked. You see, God's grace, once again, is exactly that. It's grace. It's His unmerited favor poured out on an undeserving people. That's Corinth. That's us. You see, they had mastered the art of getting it wrong, didn't they? Paul, as their pastor, pours out his love and his patience upon them in an effort to right the ship, not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Worship services had become so absolutely crazy that we didn't even understand what was going on. Now, we partook of the Lord's table this morning, and I read out of 1 Corinthians 11 specifically for that reason. Because they were messing that up to the point where it was an embarrassment to even partake of the Lord's table. It had become so much about themselves and their party and their drinking and their eating that they cared very little for the poor that were among them and the people that were showing up that had no idea what they were doing on that particular Lord's Day morning. You see, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be incredibly harmful if they are used for the building up of oneself and not the entire body of Christ. We learned that last week, and even Paul more so in the text that we have today to explore before us, will show us that the perfect use and balance of the gifts feeds the heart. It opens the mind and it convicts the unbeliever. That's the perfect balance in the use of the gifts. It feeds the heart, it opens the mind, and it convicts the unbeliever. You see, Paul started today our text this morning with that big fat word, therefore. Every time we see therefore, what are you supposed to do? Understand what that word is there for. Why it's there. Having established that all must be done for the edification of the body, Paul moves forward in order that we may all be productive for one another. He finally begins to explain exactly what a service is supposed to look like. Remember, in love, 
all things are to be done. We've learned that. Something that we have to hold dear to our heart. In love, all things are to be done. Our duty is to one another in order to build up the body of Christ. This is something we have to be aware of in every single thing that we do, in action and in words. Now, what that means is that we all have to discover and be obedient to step into that which God has called for us individually to be doing within the local congregation and then beyond these four walls. It's a lot more complicated than me just looking at Jake saying, here's your assignment today. Or me looking at Rodney saying, this is your assignment today. We have to be prayerfully seeking the Lord and his Holy Spirit. See, none of you are here by accident. I keep saying that because that's the truth. You are not here by accident. So as we learn to grow and we work together as a community of believers here, let's strive towards those things, glorifying God in every single thing we do. Paul starts right away here with the proper use and the function of the gift of tongues when he says this, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should do what? Pray that they may interpret. It's important. Pray that they may interpret. Now, last week I told you that the gifts Paul speaks of here is just that. It's a gift. It's the same in function as tongues that we saw in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It's different in purpose. Same in function, different in purpose. The tongues that were given as evidence of baptism were given for a different purpose. They were given in order that people would know that the infilling had happened and it was the outward sign that they had been filled with the Holy Spirit in order to have the power to witness. The purpose of tongues here in 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 13, and 14 that Paul talks about, and as a result, any church that manifests that gift, he's making clear is to build up the body. It's a gift that is directly given to build up the body. But it can only do so if it's used properly. So he says, if you speak in tongues, you have to be praying for the interpretation. Why? Because that's the ideal way in which that gift is supposed to be used. Is that exactly the way it's used every time? No. But Paul says, ideally, that is what you should be shooting for. Now, there's times that the Lord gives you the words and then you interpret it or you wait for somebody else to interpret it. That does happen. That happens occasionally. But the best way to grow spiritually and into the maturity that God wants you to grow into is to be praying for the interpretation to go through you at the same time you're speaking that language. Now, why would we want that? One of the reasons that we find here is that it helps the unbeliever who is actually within the service to see that what's happening isn't some divine guessing game where somebody speaks a tongue and then we just all stand here awkwardly hoping that somebody's going to say something. And then somebody, after a moment or two of awkward silence, just says something so people won't feel strange that it wasn't interpreted. And that's happened. And it continues to happen in churches. And that's not what the Lord wants, and that causes an unbeliever to go, that's a little weird for me, and it makes no sense, and I'm not sure it's real. You see, what the other thing that it does is it helps the believer to exercise the mind. It helps us to exercise our mind. It helps the believer to grow in their walk and their faith in God as well. Paul is very concerned with that as much as he is anything else. He's extremely concerned with our maturity in Christ and our growth in him. He wants our minds to understand. He wants our minds to be fruitful. As he says this in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is what? Unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, so... Don't let it go. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. It's not disjointed. Paul here is challenging all of us to these very things. 
You see, one of the criticisms, and sadly it's so very true for us as a church, is that Christians, especially Pentecostal churches, like it or not, these are the truths, go solely on emotion on a Sunday morning. Run with the feelings and a very simple faith. Now notice I said here a simple faith. There's a difference between faith and the simple faith. Simple faith says, well, that's just how it is. We don't really need to worry about it without ever exercising the mind to seek the deep truths that God's trying to teach us and looking for the evidence that he's actually moving within what's going on. Now, faith, the writer to Hebrews tells us, is the assurance and its conviction. Assurance and conviction. Those things aren't based in feeling and they're not based on our emotion and that's a very good thing for us. Because if I were to go on my emotion, there's probably days where you would wonder whether I was a Christian or not. We don't want to go based upon our emotion. Faith rooted there stands the test of time, and most especially when things get bad, rooted in assurance and conviction. Having a faith that's sorted out in our minds is a mature faith that also shows the unbeliever who shows up on a Sunday morning that we base our beliefs not in some goofy thing that doesn't make any sense to anybody. Rather, our faith is in a person. It's in a person, and his name is Jesus. A historical figure who rose from the dead, and we put our faith in him, not on an activity. Now, for two years, I've been invited to speak down at Middlebury College at the Global Pentecostalism class, and without fail, one of the first questions that is always asked by at least one of the students is, how crazy does your service get on Sunday morning? Now, why would they ask that? Why would they ask that? Because that is typically what you find when you research Pentecostal church services online. You don't have a healthy, good, vibrant, balanced Pentecostal church because that's not what people want to see online. It's not what they want to see. They want to see all the crazy things that go on. They focus on these unbelievers or these kids that are asking me these questions. They focus on and they do exactly what Paul says an unbeliever will do when they start seeing such things. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outsider or unbeliever enters, these students who are watching these videos, will they not say, you're out of your minds? Now, I can attest to the fact, after having sat in those classes, that is exactly what they say. Kind of funny how Paul got that right on the head, didn't he? When they see that, they don't understand what's going on, they think you're all crazy, we're not going to go. So I just invite them here, And most of the time they come. I spend as much time trying to explain this to them. And that's what Paul talks about today. See, the kind of stuff is just what Paul's teaching the church at Corinth through. He wants them to move beyond all of this stuff. Don't be this way in your gatherings, he's telling them. Don't be this way on Sunday morning. It's not the way you're supposed to be. It's too self-serving. It's too inward focused. It's not building you up and building the body up the way the Holy Spirit wants to. Now, if we really want to benefit and truly want to benefit something and someone more than just us, we have to use our minds as well. We're called to exercise and use the mind that God gave us. Now, that flies in the face, flies directly in the face of the culturally held notion today that all Christians are somehow unintelligent and throw their brains out the windows the minute they walk into a church service. After all, it's the only way a person can believe such silliness, right? They couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. You see, the Holy Spirit is not a mystical thing. And if they read Scripture, they'd understand that. The Holy Spirit is not a mystical thing. He, not it, He is the third person of the Trinity. 
His job is to remind us of every single thing that Jesus did, what we are to do in relation to that in this world, and to conform us to the image of God's Son, who is Jesus, our King. That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's why Paul in his letter to Rome says that we're called to present what? Our entire bodies, our whole bodies as living sacrifices to him. That's the whole point. Not to check our brains at the door, but to give everything over to God to be transformed. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is holy and acceptable in our spiritual act of worship. We are called, my friends, to do something. We are called to do something. Exercising the gifts is one of those things we are called to do, whether it be here or elsewhere in our lives. But we're to do so with all of our being. Every part of who we are is to be poured out before the Lord, doing so in order to build up the church of Christ, not just our own selves. Don't be conformed, Paul tells us, to this world. Don't try to fit in with the culture. See, the problem with Corinth, remember, in part was that they had found Jesus, but they had not forgotten their old ways. They had found Jesus, but they hadn't forgotten their own ways. Their service didn't look much different than the pagan temple services throughout the city. How could anyone come to Jesus if they walked into that kind of chaos and people were saying things which made no sense and no one was explaining anything at all to a new person? The unbeliever will be lost because the answer to that question is is they can't, they won't, and neither will people today. It doesn't change today. It's no different. Paul says pray with your mind and your spirit, not just one or the other, because a transformed mind knows the will of God. Paul never says this stuff stops for all eternity. It doesn't, especially in relation to tongues. It is very vibrant and should be still used and active today. But it is most fruitful and understood by the speaker if they pray and share what the interpretation is in the service. That's how it's supposed to be done. It must be fruitful and understood by the speaker if it's going to be shared. Paul says no new person or outsider will have a clue. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. You may be having a great time all by yourself, but the other person is not being built up. Paul is so concerned about that one person in the congregation that doesn't have a clue who Jesus is. It's important for us to get a hold of that. One of the things we have to grasp, and I want you to hear this, is that the Holy Spirit, in part, is growing us to maturity in these gifts at the same exact time he is using those gifts to capture the hearts and the mind of the unbeliever who shows up on Sunday morning. At the same time we are being grown to maturity, he is capturing the heart and the mind of the unbeliever in and through those same gifts. Paul's very concerned that these folks are not moving to maturity or growing in their faith, so he challenges them. He says, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Don't be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So he throws this twofold challenge at him. He says, first, be infants in evil. Second, be mature in your thinking. It's not real hard. Be infants in evil, mature in your thinking. And it seems to me that a mature Christian is what? A deep-thinking person. 
Somebody who thinks deeply about the stuff that they know. In whatever respect, hear me, in whatever respect and wherever you are in your walk with the Lord, that's where you need to be thinking deeply. The writer of Hebrews addresses spiritual immaturity when he challenges them to be more than they actually are. It says, starting in verse 11 of chapter 5, about this we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. That means you aren't listening to what we're trying to teach you. We don't have that problem, I know. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now what that doesn't mean is that we're all to be exactly the same. Now remember, we've talked about that over and over again. Each and every one of you are a unique, image-bearing, gifted human being. We're not in the same place spiritually. We're not in the same place physically. Don't misunderstand me. Reading scripture that way, as if we're all supposed to be exactly the same, and then applying it that way will always leave people feeling like they aren't measuring up every single time. Now why do I say that? Because they aren't like sister so-and-so. She's just so much more gifted than I am and I need to be there. Really? What if you're not gifted in that area? Or brother so-and-so is so good at this and that and that I just can't get there so somehow I'm failing. That's okay. This is exactly what Paul is trying to teach the church. That's not how we're supposed to learn these things. Maturity means that we don't think that way. Maturity means that we think that we are exactly where we're supposed to be because God is working on each of us individually so that the body grows. So that the body grows. That's what he's trying to teach the church. And he even goes so far as to say so in Philippi and in relation to our righteousness that's found in Christ. Paul tells him that he hasn't even figured it all out. Now Paul wrote more than half the New Testament. And he is sharing with this church in Philippi that he ain't got it all figured out but that he's striving towards that end. He's not going to give up. And he says this, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now hear this, only let us hold true to what we've attained. Where you are right now, stand firm on that. What you understand right now, stand firm on that. Live up to what it is God has given you right now. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. Don't think you've got to be better than somebody else. And don't think that somebody else is better than you or whatever it may be. Don't keep looking at another person in your life and thinking that they're better and they're farther along. Or even worse yet, even worse yet, don't look at them and think that you're much better than they are. Don't do it. Don't do it. We are where we are supposed to be if we are being faithful in what God has given us. And then we celebrate that within the uniqueness of who we are in the corporate body of Christ and the body is healthy. Paul is saying in all of his writings, live up to what you know. Be as faithful as you can with what you understand. Be as mature as possible where you are in Christ and his grace will be abundantly more and abundantly all that you can ask or ever imagine. In using what God has given you right here and right now, exercising maturity in what you have already attained. That's the goal. Within the body of Christ, God will grow you more and more every time you're faithful to do that. And guess what? He will give you more and more. 
He doesn't say, okay, now that you got that figured out, we're going to give you three weeks vacation on an island somewhere. You don't need to worry about anything. Unfortunately, we are given more. But we have to live up to what we already know. Being mature in Jesus allows us to focus on those things for the benefit of others. The moment we have the ability to turn the corner and stop playing the comparison game, we begin to focus on building each other up in the faith and caring a great deal more for the unbeliever who shows up than we do about getting our own way. The unbeliever becomes the most important thing. Paul talks about what's in the law and he quotes Deuteronomy and Isaiah the prophet. And I'm going to leave that for you. It's Deuteronomy 28 and Isaiah 28. Otherwise, we're never going to really get out of here. I just want to spend a moment on that. What he does, in essence, he goes there to prove a point. It seems clear about stubbornness and rebelliousness about God's people. That's what he's doing. And as a result, a people of a foreign or who are foreign to them, will come and be used by him to bring his judgment upon them because of their stubbornness and their refusal to listen to his word. That's what the context of those two passages are. Again, I leave that to you to research. And I can only speculate as to why Paul went there, but I can say, with some sort of assurance, that given what Paul has been dealing with in regards to these people, is that he, Paul, is frustrated with their blockheadedness if I may use that word, and their refusal to get the chaos of the Lord's day and their gathering under control. God is being mocked among the Gentiles in Corinth because of the way they were behaving. You see, folks, a hard heart's going to keep our minds from thinking properly. A hard heart will always keep our mind from thinking properly. Now think about it for a minute. If you're upset with your spouse, for example, because that's always the best place that I can go, how clearly do you think don't answer that, gentlemen, especially wives. Don't answer that. But think about that. I want, to, I want you to think on that. How clearly do you think? Suffice it to say, we never think very clearly at those times. You see, the key to an open mind is a soft heart toward God. A key to an open mind is a soft heart toward God. That, that in turn, makes us tender toward one another and most especially toward the unbeliever. I'm going to stop here because I, we are almost out of time and I have more to do, but we'll deal with it next week. I want to leave this with you. If I could have the worship team come up. Jesus, after feeding 4,000 people in Mark chapter 8, you can find it in Matthew, you can find it in Luke. If I could have the prayer teams also take their place. I'll, I'll get to the end. I'll stop when I get there. See, Jesus, after feeding 4,000 people in Mark chapter 8, asks his disciples a very painful yet simple question at the end of verse 17. He simply says this, are your hearts hardened? Are your hearts hardened? You see, Jesus was trying to teach them about the bad teachings of the Pharisees and they were still thinking about food. They were still thinking about food. See, what we are to learn here, how we are to grow to maturity, can't be learned until our hearts are softened towards God. That's why knowledge does nothing we learned last week except to puff us up. Our hearts need to be soft towards God in order for us to be passionate towards a people. What we know doesn't matter, my friends, if our hearts are hard and not in love with God. It doesn't matter how much you take away from this. If our hearts aren't tender to God, we will never have a tender heart towards somebody who doesn't know who Jesus is. We just won't. 
I want to encourage you because I'm going to leave it off there. I still have quite a bit. We'll tackle it next week. I want to leave that with you today on this Independence Day or the day before as we celebrated communion. Jesus wants the law written on our heart. He wants it living. He wants it breathing. He wants it active in and through the things we do. I want to challenge you this week. Be in prayer in relation to how God has gifted you and ask him, Lord, are there areas in my life if we could just stand? Because this is what I'm going to challenge you with. With heads bowed and eyes closed (laughs) and yet in full confession before God. Are there areas in your life where your heart's hard? I know there is in mine. Are there areas in your life that you are struggling with? That God, through his Holy Spirit, is trying to tell you, look, you're just a little bit blockheaded there. He's doing that with me. And maybe I'm just speaking to myself, but I'm going to do that in front of this congregation. I want to challenge you. There's folks up front and there's folks up back. I want to say to you, if that is an issue with you today, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what you're dealing with. God desires that you bring that before him, confess that before him in order that the Holy Spirit may begin that softening process, that the gifts that he has given specifically to you then can be used so that the church itself can grow and that an unbeliever can see Jesus in your job, in your actions, in your words, in the life that you live outside of these four walls. So Father, as we close here in this very last song today, I pray for everybody here, myself as well, I come before you and I I ask for your forgiveness in those areas in my life and in my heart where I have just hardened myself to the work of the Holy Spirit, where I have not allowed you to speak your scriptures and your truth into that area. I pray for anybody here this morning that is struggling with that, that of all weekends of the year here in America, why not step out in that independence that Jesus has already purchased for us? And ask you to release us into a new thing, into a new level of gifting, into a new call, into a new walk. All for Christ's sake and his glory in this world. In his name, amen.